Hey, Lily, I learned something really important from our guest today. Uh, That's really good, Randy. I mean, it's sort of the point of the entire podcast, but (laughs) why was today so special? Well, it's not every episode that I learn why the omelets at the Cheesecake Factory are so damn good, and also why they're so damn evil. And I learned, kind of, what the Cheesecake Factory is. Um, I may need to actually visit one to totally understand why it's important to you two, though. But I also learned some things that are actually quite relevant as well, like what information architecture is and how we use it in our everyday product lives um, and how we can make sure that it's good. And we also learned about how many words for video one product had before she got involved. Yeah, this was a really fun conversation. And it's because we've got author and information architect Abby Covert here today. So enough blathering on from us too about what's in the interview. Let's just prioritize getting straight to it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Abby. It's so nice to be talking to you today. So before we get stuck into the chat, it'd be really great if you could give us a quick intro into who you are and what you do and how you got into it as well. Oh, sure. Uh, Well, first, thank you for having me. This is really awesome. Um, I'm excited to talk to your audience about information architecture. Um, So a little bit about me. I am an information architect. I've been practicing for about 17 years now. Um, When I went to university, it was really uh, more with the expectation that I would come out with a print design degree. So my information architecture education started from that standpoint of thinking about hierarchies of type and form um, and color and the use of language to communicate meaning uh, was very much like, you know, relegated to the rectangle of paper that I was currently designing. When I got a little later in my education, I started to understand that those same principles were really applicable to the digital world. And by the time I got out of school, rich Internet applications had taken over the world and everything was really changing. And information architecture was a very needed skill set. So I got into the elevator of this field pretty early. Um, At that point, there were a couple books that were out there um, about that practice. There were a lot of mailing lists that were forming in conferences. Um, And I was able to kind of jump in there and really um, create a a place for myself as being a person that could take all of that really heavy, more librarian uh, focused information architecture content that was coming out from like the University of Michigan um, and sort of marry it with this graphic design sensibility um, and the simplicity of, of meaning and kind of like crystallized focus. So um, I went on to write a book that's called How to Make Sense of Any Mess. It claims to deal with any mess, and I, I hold true to that. So far, I haven't come up on one that really stumps it. Um, and yeah, for the seven years since, I've been working for clients, doing information architecture work. Most recently, I spent the last four years as the information architect for Etsy, um, and I was pretty much the 
one of the founding team members that brought graph knowledge um, to that billion dollar business. So that was the, the biggest mess that I faced in my life thus far. Um, and now I'm facing a next mess, which is I'm writing a book about diagrams um, that I hope to have out early next year. So yeah, that kind of catches us up to now. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks, Abby. It sounds like you are definitely the go-to person to talk to about information architecture. But before we kind of carry on with the talk, just uh, explain a little bit more about what it is, because you've kind of alluded to it a little bit about mm -hmm. um, making sense of mess and yeah. uh, triangles yeah. and... <laughs> Sure. So um, information architecture, if you really take it down to its basics, it's the way that we organize something to make sense as a whole. And if you just sit on that definition for a beat, you realize how many things that really applies to. So that's the structure and order that you place pages in a book. That's the number of pages and the names of those pages and the content that exists on each of those pages. Uh, on a website, that's the signs that you might use to direct people through an airport. Um, and all of those things kind of underlying share the same basic principles of um, ontology, which is what does what does a thing mean? Uh, taxonomy, what does that thing classify as? And then choreography uh, or topology, like how, how do people move through that space? Um, and so with those kind of three basic tenants, you can sort of look at any experience architecturally um, and sort of draw out the information. And so... I kind of had some experience with information architecture early on in my career um, where it sort of seemed to be like more fashionable to be talking about it. Um, you know how these kind of trends come and go. Uh, but now it seems to be a term that doesn't come up as frequently and, and also a, a sort of role, I guess, that the designer or the UX person might take on is to think about how things are structured and how, what language we use and things like that. So how have you kind of seen it change over the years? And like, what's your sort of view on where it should sit now as a function? Yeah. So I think it's really interesting. If you think about information architecture as the way that we arrange things to make sense as a whole, that means that it wasn't created to manage technology. That means it wasn't created to manage books. That means it was sort of like baseline humanity stuff, you know? Um, so that kind of creates a quandary from the marketability of it as a thing in the tech world. So it's, it's a fundamental part of what every product manager, every engineer, every designer, every UX uh, researcher, all of those people, it's a fundamental skill that all of them are bringing to the table. And words and structure tend to be the materials that we all share. And so we can get into these really weird situations where who decides how to divide the pie? Who decides what to call the things? Is it the marketing person? Is it the product manager? Is it the UX designer? Is it the engineer that wrote it into the database? All of those IA decisions are left up in a lot of cases to chance, right? So one of the things I like to say about IA is that you can't have, uh, you can't take it away and you can't add it, right? It's like, it's always there. So you make it through the decisions that you make. So for companies that are um, fighting the user experience fight that many of us are, are fighting daily, um, without thinking about information architecture, you're probably not going to get very far. But because it's such a retronym, you don't have to call it that to think about it, right? Like you're having information architecture conversations all day long. You just don't know to call it that. And like when you talk about um, the structure of the navigation, like you're talking about a taxonomy, but you don't need to know that word in order to do that job well, mm. right? You just need to know that 
things need to be structured for people to make sense, right? So that's that's sort of, I think, the crux of the, the marketing issue that I would place information architecture into having is like, when the user experience field was born, which it was very much born from the um, from the IA community back in the day, if you like look into the the way that it worked is like the interaction design community, the HCI community and the IA community all merged into like the UX community. Well, when that happened, all of the role division stuff started to really come up and mm -hmm. it became like what project is big enough that you have somebody who's just responsible for the structure and the language. So, you know, you have to look at it from that standpoint. Like, how big is your mess? If you have a, a <laughs> website that you can draw in one diagram, you probably don't need an information architect on your staff. If you're a billion dollar business that's trying to figure out how to go from a purely taxonomic way of looking at things to the wild world of graph knowledge, and you want to do that without somebody with that responsibility, good luck to you. You know, that's <laughs> good luck. That's that's just where it goes because the incentive becomes the medium. If my incentive in the organization is to make that make sense, and that is my only incentive, I am different than people who are incentivized to ship products or people that are incentivized to serve the user. Shipping products and serving the users can often be at odds. As an information mm -hmm. architect, I find myself coming into the middle and going, hey, we actually have to serve both. We have to ship products that serve the needs of users. And that's hard because product managers are like, well, but how do you know what's going to serve all users? You can't prove that it's going to serve all users. And the user experience people were like, but it can't be all marketing. It can't be all marketing. It has to actually have value to an actual person. And so that that jam up in the middle um, for years, we've called it the messy middle. And I think that that's a really apt term. OK, you've used the term graph a couple of times. and I'd like to get to that. But just before that, um, you've kind of made the case for having an information architect and made the case for not having one. And I think it's the same thing around product uh, where there's, you know, huge fights and Melissa Perry is really good at talking about the uh, product owner is not yeah. a job. It's a role that people play. And it sounds like what you're saying is in most cases, if you're not big enough, if your mess isn't big enough, uh, information architecture is a capability that the team yeah. needs. So where yeah. do we start in getting that capability? What, you know, if we, if we're not big enough, uh, if we're not funded enough, if our problem isn't messy enough, where's, where's a good place to start to make sure that we have a decent grounding uh, in the capability across the team? So this is the interesting thing about the naming challenge, right? If the name goes away, the investment in education ultimately goes away too, right? Like if companies aren't buying information architecture by the name, then information architecture as something that's invested in from the content perspective starts to go away. What happens then is that people who are in situations where they face these incredible information architecture challenges, they don't have the words to type into the box to get the things that they need. And so we end up with this like really suburbanized internet as a result where you see people purely stealing the information architecture of their nearest competitor, right? It's like, well, go look at all the competitors, see how they did it and then do it that way. And it's like, well, did you ask if they paid a dude on Fiverr to do it over the weekend? Because that's <laughs> Like, you got to be really careful of like who you're copying in this and, world. And how do you know it works? Users. Yeah. And how do you know that it works for your user? So I think that like at the end of the day, the, the advice that I find myself giving is not like go get yourself a library degree and become an information architect or hire an information architect. It's talk to your stakeholders and your users about words and structures and have real conversations about how those things get in the way of whatever you're trying to get done. And it really is that simple and that hard all at the same time. 
Okay, so just to clarify, we shouldn't be uh, just stealing our competitors' information architecture, their navigation please and... Please stop. Please stop. Yes. <laughs> this is how we got McMansions, everybody. Architecturally speaking, this is how it happened, right? It starts with strip malls and ends with McMansions. And like, we're in the strip mall territory. Everything kind of looks boring and the same, but it's getting gross. It's getting really gross. So <laughs> stop it. Stop it out there. Stop it. <laughs> okay, so you let's get into graphs then, because you mentioned that a couple of times. And I mean, I know what a graph is, but I think you're using that word in a slightly different way. So let's disambiguate. What what do you mean by graph from an IA perspective? Yeah, sure. So when you think about the organization of information, things tend to go into different patterns, right? You have hierarchies where there's a category like a parent and then it has children or things within the category. So like, let's say you had a product catalog of clothing and then within that you had a category of pants and shirts and then you'd have items within those categories. That's a hierarchy, right? But let's say that you wanted to do something better than that right? Something that customers are starting to expect. For example, this shirt goes with these pants. If you wanted to do that, you would be breaking the hierarchy. So there's ways that you could do that that would be super kludgy from like just replicating a hierarchy standpoint. You could make hierarchies for outfits and then manually do that. Or you could start to understand those items at their attribute level and then attaching things at that attribute level to other things. So you could say blue shirts go with blue pants, for example. Um, and so that that idea of moving from hierarchical only um, or, you know, heterarchical only to graph based knowledge. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big concept that a lot of companies have been doing for a really long time. And a lot of smaller companies are finally um, getting the tooling to actually be able to get into the space, which is really cool and interesting. You kind of mentioned this earlier about how if your information architecture is is wrong, um, and I mean it in the sort of the broadest sense of like, you know, you're mm -hmm. getting bits wrong across your business, mm -hmm. um, yeah. across your language and your structure and stuff, then it, yeah. you know, it's going to have a huge kind of negative impact on the on the business. But yeah. like, how do you measure the success of it? And how do you sort of understand the failings of the information architecture that you've got? Yeah, uh, I think that that's a critical question. I believe that when that question is asked, people want very much for there to be like an answer that is going to always work. Um, and it sucks that I cannot give you that answer. But what I can say is that there are almost always metrics that you can use. Those metrics are a combination of qualitative and quantitative metrics in a lot of cases. Um, so that's something that you have to take into account. Along with qualitative and quantitative, you also have to be looking for metrics that are above the line and uh, below the line, like what the customer is actually seeing versus like what's happening in the back of house. Because in a lot of cases, uh, the information architecture challenges that I work on, you know, they're systems that are, uh, you know, pieces of software talking to other pieces of software, talking to APIs that talk to other people's software, like there's a lot going on there. So I think that it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, there's a lot going on there and that we need to kind of get in and um, look at all of those connections and look for the place where people are slipping through. Like, what is the intended path that you want people to take? Where are they falling off? And what's getting in the way there? I mean, often it really does take looking at data to find the hole and then going to the place where the hole exists on purpose with a bunch of users and watching them fall into the hole. And usually I know that they're going to fall into the hole way before I'm done with the test, but I have to like produce 10 hours worth of footage of them falling into a hole before somebody will give me the money to fix the hole. So 
yeah, that that's really what it comes down to is like figure out what's the number that isn't moving the way people want it to move and then move that number. And I've had IA challenges that are about raising conversion rate. Um, that's a pretty common one, obviously, in e-commerce. But I've also had ones that are like, get off this website and pick up the phone right now, which is not necessarily one that you think about or hear all the time in, in product management and e-commerce. Um, so yeah, there's a variety of, of ways. I mean, one of my most favorite projects I did uh, when I was consulting was redesigning the um, International House of Pancakes menu system. I'm not talking about their website menu. I'm talking about the piece of glossy paper on the table. Um, and you know, we were able to see a sales increase store by store by replacing that menu system. Um, so that's real money, you know? Mm. God, I haven't been to an IHOP in years, mostly because I live in the UK now. But next time I go, uh, this is, I'm really fascinated to take it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned so many things. Can I tell your, your uh, listeners a little secret? Please. The reason that their omelets are so delicious is because they put pancake batter in them. So just know that. Ooh. <laughs> just know that. Like if you're gluten-free, uh, that's a nightmare. So I'm that just is, putting it all over everybody. I mean, that is so good and so bad in so many ways. I know. No, I know. Exactly. Exactly. If you've eaten it in IHOP, you'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's one practical example. I wanted to hear about a couple of other practical examples of things. And I saw a talk you did where this just uh, let's go with flabbergasted. Uh, how many words for video were there in, in being used? Well, I'm curious, how many words for video could you actually come up with off the top of your head? Oh my gosh. Okay. Here, let's see if I can do it. Let's see. Okay. Um, video clip, um, real moment, um, <laughs> past, um, yeah, I got to five with like seven years of distance from that project. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, eventually, there were, I want to say 13 or 14 was the number that we landed on. It was wild. Um, and that was really interesting because that was a very small company. It was a company that when I started working with them, they were uh, less than 200 people startup. Um, but they had recently acquired two other startups of a, approximately the same size or a little bit smaller. And they had fully functional shipped products out there all on different channels. So like one of them was like the Android market cornered. One of them was the iPhone market cornered. And then the other had the web cornered. And so they all merged. It was brilliant from a strategy perspective. Nightmare from a product perspective. Think about that. Merging all that language, all of that customer support, the marketing, all of those verbs. It was a nightmare. So um, it really was a, a challenging assignment to go in there and basically like excavate out all of the language. Like I went in on a verb hunt and I just went looking everywhere I could find it. I interviewed their customer service reps. I looked in the scripts that they used on the phone with their customers. I looked in all their emails. I looked in all the navigation, all of the interface links. And I just ripped everything out and made a huge association map of all of it so that we could go into a room with all of the product owners from all of the products and decide a direction. And then we could figure out what the like multi-year strategy to move all the way towards that direction might actually look like. And then we had to go train everybody that this is actually going to happen and we're really going to make all of these big changes. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was that was a wild, wild example, um, but a really common one, I think, that a lot of companies see and, you know, kind of skirt under the rug instead of dealing with. Sprig, formerly UserLeap, is an all-in-one product research platform that lets you ask bite-sized questions to your customers within your product or existing user journeys. 
Companies like Dropbox, Square, Opendoor, Loom, and Shift all use Sprig's video interviews, concept tests, and micro-surveys to understand their customers at the pace of modern software development so they can build customer-centric products that deliver a sustainable competitive advantage. So if you're part of an agile product team that wants to obtain rich insights from users at the pace you ship products, then give Sprig a try for free by visiting sprig.com. Again, that's sprig, S-P-R-I-G dot com. So I'm curious, um, from a philosophy standpoint, I often go into companies that aren't necessarily that excited about product or agile, but what they do care about is doing it right. And it's they have an allergy to, to terms rather than an allergy to, to concepts. And yeah. I, I tell them, I'm an agnostic about what you call this. So, well, you know, I'll use your vocabulary or your terminology. Uh, it, what's important is, is how we do it. And that's not customer facing, but when you're dealing with with the teams and and the organization, is that the approach you take, or do, is the actual terminology really important? In terms of teaching, like the background and the academics of information architecture, I spend zero effort trying to um, enhance my coworkers' understanding of those things, unless they show interest. Like. I have not yet had an assignment where somebody on that team didn't show themselves to be a total nerd and want to get in on this stuff with me. And they end up going to the conferences and, you know, doing the whole thing. Um, But no, for the most part, I don't think that the words matter as much. Like I don't, I don't have any interest myself in selling information architecture as a brand um, or like a framework or like a solve because it's, it's a basic human skill. Like it's something that, my almost three-year-old son is doing right now downstairs with his blocks, moving them around to make sense to himself. Like, it's just not, I don't think that it can be that fancy because it's too big, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So if we think about um, trying to define like the perfect IA for your business, yeah. what are the ways in which you go about that? I mean, we kind of mentioned earlier about how, you know, you look at metrics to see, where there might be problems and you try and find the holes that people are falling into. But, you know, I'm thinking about sort of the businesses that have, like you say, uh, libraries of information. So like yeah. massive amounts of um, organized products or, or you know, e- for e-commerce businesses or lots yeah. and lots of data available that can be read or, uh, yeah. How do you experiment with that? Like, how do you begin to learn what the best structure is because obviously if you are if you have lots of data or that needs to be organized and you have lots of customers people are going to think about things in different ways so that just (laughs) feels like a huge challenge yeah it's huge huge. yeah so this is this is basically the reason that that i wrote the book that i wrote because i think that like the idea is just so grandiose, you know, that like you're going to go. Out, and I think that a lot of people in approaching information architecture from that academic standpoint or just from hearing about it from a business standpoint, want that that perfection. And you can't have it just like any other thing in this life. You cannot have perfection, but you can have progress. And I think that like that's the, the message that my book has. Um, so the book is organized into seven chapters, and it's also the seven steps of what I would deem a process if you were to go through one. Um, should you read the book, you'll find that it's much more process in the Yoda-like way of um, leading you through the philosophy behind information architecture so that you can practice it yourself. 
Um, but essentially it really comes down to like step one, identify the mess. Like where's the hole? What's the thing? What's the thing that's making you angry? What's the thing that's making you sad or frustrated about whatever it is? The advice I have there is like, it can't be everything. You can't, you can't identify, the mess cannot be everything is wrong, everything hurts and everything is on fire. Like you have to get more specific than that. Um, Mm -hmm. And by getting more specific, you already have started to do the hard work, right? Because often that's the step that people stumble on the hardest. They, they live in this like mental model monster cavern where they're like all these huge problems coming for them all the time. And like, sometimes you just have to step outside of that onto a piece of paper with some colleagues by yourself, whatever it takes to identify what is the actual thing that you are facing right now. Then step two, state your intention. Tell us what you're going to do about it. Like, what do you actually want to do? And like, how far do you need to get? Then face reality. What do you actually have to work with? Like step three is all about like, yeah, you had a lot of grandiose plans, but like Q2 is almost over. What are you going to do? (laughs) You know, that kind of reality. Then you choose a direction. You pick where you're going to go and you say, like, this is done. We're going to do this. We're moving this way for progress's sake. Then you measure the distance. You figure out, okay, what are the metrics like right now? And if we get to where we go or we want to go, what will they look like then, ideally? Um, Then you play with the structure. Like, once you have a set of metrics that you're trying to achieve, there's still like 70 million ways that you could achieve that objective, right? So that's when you start to get into like, what are the structural ways that we could play with? What are the, the technical tricks of the trade that we could implement? What are the interface things? What are the, the challenges of connecting all the bits together? And like, what are the options? And then finally, step seven, prepare to adjust because none of that is going to work out the way that you planned it. Even though you did a really good job thinking it through, it's still going to be something totally different than what you expected. And so you got to get ready for that part too. Um, yeah. So that, I think that that's like, for me, a realistic cap, uh, capsulization of like, what is, what does it mean to practice IA? Okay, so on the metrics and the measurement side of it, yeah. um, is it, is there an objective measure of good IA, or is it purely subjective? Is it, it it's in terms of it's, it does it help us achieve the goal, and that makes it good? Yes, correct. Yes, yes, that's exactly correct. There is no such thing as an objectively good information architecture, and this is why, as an information architect, it's really hard when people want to see that. And I keep saying, no, it doesn't exist. Like I can tell you the stories of the information architectures that I've been under the hoods of, but I'm only gonna be able to tell you one perspective on it, right? And my perspective is only crystallized in one moment in time. I mean, the IHOP example is a great one. I I wrote about on my blog recently um, that the IHOP menu was redesigned in COVID times. And it's now a disposable print from a laser printer in the back office, single sheet of paper. I mean, when I worked on that project, getting them from a 15 page glossy spread down to 12 was like, I mean, throw me a ticker tape parade for getting it through. But <laughs> times change, right? The reality of the situation changes. And the, the reason I bring it up is because there was this big article about like praising that they had done this thing. And it was so great for, for the business in COVID times for their franchise owners. My menu, the one that was ticker tape parade, just like, you know, seven, eight years ago, it was described as a 12-page laminated monstrosity in the press. Have, have any of these people been to the Cheesecake Factory? Oh, oh my gosh. Have you seen the Cheesecake Factory? Um, somebody, I think McSweeney's has a, a Cheesecake Factory menu <laughs> thing from last month. That's uh, amazing. Please look that up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel completely uh, out of, you know, also, out of my depth here. Work. 
do not work on a restaurant menu project if you ever want to eat out and be happy again. Because like restaurant menus are, they're the worst. They're the pits. <laughs> well, here in the in the UK now, they're all done through QR codes and you just look at it on your phone. So, Oh, that's so smart. See? Mm. See? Times they are a-changing. Never they get comfortable are, with yeah. the tools or the, the models. Like they all change. But the process doesn't. <laughs> Like the way that you think about the things doesn't tend to change. So one of the tips that you gave in one of your talks was around having, was more around the kind of language side of things and having what you called a controlled vocabulary. Um, Is that basically just like, oh my God, I've forgotten what you called them, the list of words and then what they mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a dictionary. Yeah, it's a dictionary for your context. So there's there's this really interesting, I, I mentioned at the very beginning when we were talking about um, the what information architecture is, there's this concept of ontology. Well, I think that the way that people, at least in my teaching experience, get ontology is by comparing it to lexicography. So lexicography is like writing lexicons. I, I want to write a dictionary. Well, to take a lexicographical perspective on a term is to find all of the meanings, all of the various meanings of what that could mean. To take an ontological point of view on that same term is to define it within context. So to say for your business, that's what this is. Um, A good example is like, think about the like button. Like on Facebook and in social media platforms fundamentally changed the lexicographical perspective on like as a noun. Like when was it a noun before social media? It wasn't like the idea of a, a like only had to exist once we had to capture it into a database. So they had to make an ontological call in their product about using like as a noun or not. And they do. They call it a like. They refer to removing likes as nouns. Um, But they didn't have to do that. They could have made a different choice. Um, Same thing is like, you know, the, the emojis that they choose to include on social platforms for giving your reactions. That's an ontological decision. They're they're limiting the range of emotions that can be expressed on purpose based on their intentions. Um, And so, yeah, I think that that's like a a really interesting, like fundamental act of information architecture is figuring out what are the words that we say and what do we mean when we say them? Um, Mm. And it's amazing how many teams fall down on just that really simple ask of like, if you could sit all of your team members down and they really will define all of the, the same things the same way, man, you're really, you're crushing it. That's awesome. So We've all had to do redesigns of sites in the past um, and products. And, you know, when you change the way things are laid out, it can totally throw people off. Yeah. When you have to change the, the, the vocabulary or the ontology about something, is there, it can do the same. Is there uh, any lessons, any hints about if you're going to change terminology? And I realize I'm using a lot of these words interchangeably, which probably shouldn't be, uh, but... But if, you're going to change, yeah, but, but if you're going to uh, have to make this kind of change, is there anything to, uh, that we should know, a quick tip to minimize impact on customers? You're going to go way slower than you want to go. That, that would be my quick tip. Um, the, the longer tip is um, you're going to have to think about this from a value to your customer standpoint in terms of how it rolls out to their view more than the value to your standpoint. And that's a really hard adjustment for a lot of businesses to make. So Um, The thing that I think people maybe get wrong is that they never define the vision of where they want to get. They only define the vision that their customers will be comfortable getting to next. And that really limits you like that makes it so you can't actually be working behind the scenes on a larger effort. 
Um, so, I mean, I think ideally you sort of define what that end goal is out and you're working in that, like, you know, one to three, if you're a small business, three to five, if you're a large business timescale. Um, and then you're looking at it from a rollout perspective and you're really focused on change management. Like what are the steps that you're going to take that are going to be the smallest impact to their process negatively and the highest positive impact to their experience with the brand um, and getting that balance right is who it's, it's it's all about the once again the reality of it like if i'm working on a product um like for example i worked uh, at etsy on our uh, community platform and the seller community at etsy is a vibrant and amazing community of people um, i happen to be one of them so i'm speaking for myself um, <laughs> but we had a really crap um, message board functionality until a couple years ago. And I was on the team that, that redesigned that. And like, yeah, it was really hard. Like we moved their cheese and everything was hard and they had to find everything again, but they were still so happy because that thing was so much better than the thing that they had before. Now there are other times where, you know, other more critical things. I worked on some banking software when you move things around in banks and you don't tell people you are going to get calls and it's going to cost money and it's going to be bad. So it, I think it, you know, I hate to say this. It's like the knuckle tattoo every information architect has. It depends. Like, <laughs> you know. <sighs> yeah, there's a reason uh, IAs and product people work together. We have the same tattoos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this has been fantastic. I have one last question because I know we're, we're going to potentially go way too long, but it's been great. Um so preview of your new book to a degree, you mentioned uh, diagrams a bit earlier. I'm not sure if this is a quick question or not, but can you give us an example of a time when a diagram has gone wrong, where it didn't serve the purpose? Because I always like to draw things down and uh, draw things out and assume that that means everyone else is going to get what I mean. But yeah. I, I know it doesn't always work that way. What's. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hmm. I'm going to generalize um, because I don't know that I can get very specific. But I think that there is a, um, a commonality with diagrams where we can show diagrams that are more complex and for us than they are for the audience that we're showing them to. So a really good example of this is like, you know, marching a big graph database association map that you can't even read on a slide into an executive boardroom and showing it as proof of trust and value in the team that's working on it, right? That's that's a move that many a PM will advise you to do, right? Like, <laughs> they don't have to understand the diagram, just put it on the slide, right? And that's fine. Until it creates a sense of either false hope or walls being built of like secrety, secretive behavior, or like things going in a different direction than other people are, are aware of. So I think like you have to be really careful about um, sort of the level of fidelity that you're representing in your diagrams and making sure that when your diagrams travel, because good diagrams start to travel on their own, um, make sure that they make sense on their own and that you don't have to be there to talk about them. So I would mm. say that like times that diagrams have gone really badly for me, I mean, aside from like, you know, I just really didn't do a great job on the first draft of a diagram and it didn't make sense to people, which is all very common, um, or the 14th draft for that matter. But I think that it's um, it's more like times that I showed a diagram or I let a diagram out of the lab before it should have been released into the wild. You know, it had too large an audience and it freaked people out. Um, and the freaking out can come in a lot of ways. Like I, actually one that comes that's so far back, I couldn't possibly get in trouble is uh, a very early <laughs> project that I did. I, I think about this all the time because I was so young and I had no idea what I was doing. But 
um, there was a, a project for um, a Medicare program and it was a pilot program for telephonic health coaching. And they were using this like green tele, like, I mean, it was just the, the black and green screen that computers used to have. That mm. was what they were looking at every day while they were answering the phones. And we were designing them a rich internet application. And I mean, this was just like mind blowing. I mean, they'd never even seen anything like this. I mean, the consumer web didn't look like this at this point. So they're looking at this prototype and we brought in all these health coaches from the call center to look at it and do usability tests. Right. And I'm moderating it. There were women that cried because they were so excited that they were going to use this thing. It never shipped, you guys. It never shipped. They never, they never sold that project. Like the comps that I made to test, I was only there to test one thing for like one week. And like, I didn't have anything to do with anything, but yeah, they never got that. So like, I think about that all the time, like the false hope of the work. And like, I think diagrams really fall into that in a lot of cases. Mm. Like we can make it look good on paper way faster than we can look good in the hands of users. And we got to be really careful with that power. Amazing. Abby, thank you. It's been so great talking to you. And um, we shall definitely put a link to the book in the show notes. So if um, anyone else wants to make sense of their mess, which I'm sure there's plenty of people out there, then uh, they should check out the book. Awesome. Well, if you've got a mess, I've got a book for you. (laughs) (laughs) Does it also help you fix the mess in your house? (laughs) Yeah, it does. I have actually, so I I did this... um, uh, diagrammatic test kitchen for my new book with uh, 50 users that I recruited off of my mailing list this last month. And I was surprised by how many of them used it to organize parts of their house. Like somebody did, really? uh, yeah. yeah, somebody did like their kitchen cupboards. They were like trying to figure out like a better way to fit everything. Um, somebody else did like um, packing for an upcoming trip. They used like a block diagram to figure out what they were going to put in the different bags for like their family packing for a big trip. Um, there was somebody who did um, a schematic of uh, their audio setup for their like their like TV and like receiver and all that stuff and like what cables okay. they were going to need to put them all behind the wall and like do it all nice or whatever. Would, yeah, would, because- would any of these people like to come to my house and help? <laughs> yeah. Probably not. I mean, nobody wants to <laughs> houses except for you know an information architect. I really need some cheesecake now. Yeah, me too. Let's wrap this up and go on a wild cheesecake hunt. What is a cheesecake hunt? (laughs) Sounds good to me. Take care, lovely listeners, and see you next time. See you next time. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer. And Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.